Jack. Season three, off and running. We're lighting up chumps and smoking fools. We're kicking ass and taking names. We are saving 15% or more on our car insurance with Geico. Good. Uh, uh, yeah, not too bad, right? Uh, yeah. I'm Riley Grant, screenwriter, maniac, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like uh, Aberrant, Banjax, and Suicide Jockeys. <laughs> the other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... Uh, David Avalone, uh, film uh, veteran, comic book writer, and uh, coffee achiever. Love it. Coffee achiever. Um, if you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many more, uh, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, I'm skipping one on purpose, and other purveyors of uh, worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check all that out. Um, amazing show for you today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we do a little uh, promo stuff out of the way, um, the trade paperback uh, for my latest and greatest comic fit, uh, the Tokusatsu joint Suicide Jockeys uh, hit um, comic shops via SourcePoint Press uh, last week. So uh, as of today, I believe it's been out for about a week. You can go out and get it, kick your way into your comic shop and grab it. Um, Tokusatsu for the Uninitiated is the Japanese sci-fi action genre that includes things like uh, Power Rangers and Voltron, but also includes Kaiju Fair like Godzilla. So uh, short and sweet, it is uh, Fast and the Furious meets uh, Voltron with an extra dollop of heart and soul and ass kickery. Um, I believe it is at a 9.2 on Comic Book Roundup. If you uh, put stock in that sort of thing, it's been reviewed very well. People have been having a ton of fun with it. So go and check it out. I'm pretty proud of it. Um, most fun I've had making a book. But um, enough about me. Before, before we move on to introducing our guests, I, I have to say for the video audience, uh, Ryland is rocking the 70s cup headphones <laughs> and me, you know, who I am and what defines me as a human being, I vastly prefer that to the Q-tip sticking out of your ears thing that uh, the kids are all doing today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the earmuffs are great. And so, so I think I got these, you know, back in like 1999 from the yeah. University of Michigan Film and Video Studies Department. Um, I kind of feel like I'm in the uh, We Are the World video. You know, yeah. like they're just going to cut to me and I'm going to be like, there are people dying <laughs> and it's time to every, lend a hand. Every time I hear that song, I think of a parody that I heard in the 80s from a local uh, comedy band. I think the Punsters did this where they mocked the commercial element of it by uh, I think when they got to Bob Dylan, uh, you know, there's a choice we're making. It's diet seven up. Uh <laughs> So I literally always sing, there's a choice we're making, it's Diet 7 Up, uh, when I hear that song. Uh, yeah, Dylan looks so confused in that video, like he just has no idea what he's doing there and, and who these people are. And, and he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't like being around. If, if you read the actual <laughs> stories, it's much better than that, where it was yeah. like he had to be taken aside a couple of times and explained where he was. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't think he was well uh, for one reason or another uh, uh, when he was at that shoot. But, um, but All right, anyway. so... Let us bring in our guest today, Stuart and Hi. Brandon and Scott. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, let's start with Stuart. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I'm a Scottish artist. I've uh, been working on this uh, graphic novel, the uh, project MK Ultra: Sex, Drugs, and the CIA, for quite some time. 
Um, in the last few years, I've been working on 2000 AD with Pat Mills. I did some, right. excuse me, I've got a cat here that's, uh, she's got a UTI. Oh. So she's, <laughs> she's scraping. She's in the toilet all the time. Ooh, she's in her little perfect. basket all the time. That's unfortunate. So yeah. you'll hear that in the background and they more than once. We've got to take it to the vet. <laughs> this, 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 this episode with extra cat pissing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so working in 2008, doing some Judge Dredd covers. There's one out right now um, and some other stuff. And uh, but, but the main focus has been MK Ultra. Uh, but also occasionally do some acting work. So recently... You know, COVID killed all that, but recently things have started coming back. So I just got a small part in Wheel of Time, the second season. So oh, great. Did, did that. Yeah, that was good. And um, and so that's me, just, you know, a guy doing you know, I, comics, I, mostly I, comics. I have to ask, just out of curiosity, noticing your middle name, you're not related to Kenneth Moore, are you? No. <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm not. Uh, but uh, I, his, he pops up, you know, my name and his name. And, sure. and his is more, I think it's M O R E. Yeah. So yeah. Slightly different spelling, but yeah. Both we, of us. We uh, we it. Like some weird ass Hollywood decision to drop an O <laughs> in a perfectly normal uh, name. Yeah, no. name. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, I was curious just because we're both actors and, you know, that's your middle name and all that. And he was an amazing. Yeah, actor. but I'm, I'm one of those blinking, you'll miss me actors. He's a proper actor. <laughs> Yeah, but the yeah, Wheel of Time is a great show. So that's it's fantastic, and I was really <laughs> delighted. It was really, really cool to be able to do that because uh, with COVID, I'd just given up on the whole thing of ever acting again and quite content just sitting at my workstation here drawing and painting. And COVID really, the isolation didn't really affect me um, like it did a lot of people because I'm quite sure. content. You know, indoors, a lot of comic artists are, a lot of writers are. So guys like me aren't that badly affected by it. But... Um, you know, you do get very used to it. And uh, and so the next thing I knew, I had this part and I had to go out and ride a horse. And that was the most <laughs> freeing and liberating thing you could imagine. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because I haven't done that in some years. So being able to do that again was was like a dream come true. It was sure. really, really nice. Brandon, how about you? Tell us a little about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a filmmaker, screenwriter, musician, editor, and spiritual seeker. <laughs> um brewer i brewed beer oh, well. um grower i'm i'm just about everything at this point um and i'm this behind me is sort of my current uh passion project it's a film adaptation of a, a multimedia stage rock show that i've been working on for 12 years and um <clears throat> When COVID hit, you know, theater was obviously not a, a no-go. So we decided to just turn it into a micro-budget film. Um, so at least we'll have, you know, some record of it uh, if, if the stage show never goes anywhere, you know. Yeah. For the for the folks listening on audio only, can you say the title? It's called okay. Parallel Worlds, A Rock and Roll Love Story. Nice. And we're in post-production right now. We shot it last summer. And um, I'm in the middle of editing. I got a little reshoot we're going to do uh, in a couple weeks out in L.A. And then uh, back to the editing room. And I should have it ready to start sending out to festivals in probably a month or two. Great. So, yeah. Great. That's good timing. <laughs> when I, I was a professional film editor for about 25 years. And, and nothing tired me more than people scrambling to finish their movies on October <laughs> so they could make the... Uh, Oh, the, the Sundance, Sundance, Sundance yeah. deadline for a festival that absolutely has no interest in your film. I promise exactly, you right now. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, don't 
just just get over that and make your film and don't worry about what Robert Redford's people think of it. Exactly. Uh, Scott, your turn. Tell us something about yourself. Uh, well, these these days I make my money selling cannabis, but uh, <laughs> creatively speaking, uh, Brandon and I have been friends and collaborators for over 30 years. Uh, not to date ourselves, but college making short comedic videos together which eventually led to a musical that musical went to Prague, which is where we first intersected with uh, stewart <clears throat> back in the day uh that led to a pretty active screenwriting pursuit uh at one point we had agents and manager so the tv show to fox never got made uh they made a movie called remarkable power which started a bunch of mid-level stars uh kevin neal and tom arnold kip pardue dule hill was evan peter's first film and that movie was really meant to be the stepping stone for the movie we really wanted to make, which was MK Ultra, which eventually led us to where we are now with the graphic novel. And uh, I guess we'll get more into how that story sure. came about later, but that's kind of the, the short end of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it started with uh, Scott and Brandon writing a screenplay together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you met Stuart in Prague. Uh, Stuart, what were you doing in Prague? What was your, what brought you there? Well, um, my my girlfriend, uh, no, my wife uh, moved out here to do uh, an internship for a few months, and I was working in Glasgow on a series of paintings, but I didn't really see anything really beyond the next few projects. There was nothing really, I felt it was kind of bleak, and uh, and I came to visit Kathy, and she was only going to be here a few weeks, and uh, and I just fell in love with the place, and I think mm. that's probably similar to Brandon and Scott. You come out here especially at that time. And you just, you know, it was just fantastic. And uh, for so many reasons, um, uh, you know, it was a new country and it was uh, like a new, a new, a new democracy. Uh, the uh, leader was, uh, you know, an artist himself. Uh, that's fairly unique. Um, so it was just a wonderful time. So that's why I was here. But um, the reason Brandon and Scott and I met was that a mutual friend uh, had, uh, they had contacted him saying, do you know anybody who acts? Do you know anybody who, who can play a, a junkie? Because this guy who was going to play a junkie has disappeared. He's maybe a real junkie. <laughs> he was. Can I find him? What do you think about him? And then, um, so, so this friend said, oh, yeah, Stuart acts. So then they sent me in. And of course, I don't look like a junkie. You know, I don't look like I've missed a, a meal in my entire life. So I didn't want to say anything. But. <laughs> so, you know, I don't. I saw a note of disappointment in their faces when I arrived. But, you know, I helped them out. And uh, I think we got, yeah. got a good laugh. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think we we're just about to roll cameras on Stuart. And he had, like, the college sweatshirt on. And <laughs> the junkie was actually not playing a junkie. We found this kid on the street because our other actor had pulled out. And we just approached him and, you know, he, he bummed a cigarette off us and we were like, maybe this guy, you know, and <laughs> so we, we get this kid in there and, you know, and suddenly, you know, he's supposed to show up at a certain time and he's not there. And then, you know, so we get Stuart in there, we get this, the sweatshirt on him. He's supposed What's to be playing like a, a young college kid, you know, <laughs> and Stuart obviously did not look anything like that. Right. And he's Scottish, you know, um, he had these big sideburns and everything. And we're just about to roll camera because we're about to lose our light. And then all of a sudden, here comes Scott running down the cobblestone street with, with the kid in tow and uh, whipped the, sweat, the sweatshirt off Stuart, put it back on the kid, roll camera. So 
We got it. <laughs> and this this was when you were trying to do something on MK Ultra. This, this no, this was this, this predates MK Ultra. It's hard to imagine anything predating MK Ultra. It goes back yeah. so far. But we we were in town doing like a kind of a promo faux trailer, you know, for a, a, another script that we were working on that took place. It's about American in Prague, and so um, we were going to just kind of put together a little sizzle promo piece that we could send out and uh try to elicit interest so this was this was 98 so mm. this goes back quite a while so mm. yeah i remember stewart's big scene he was smoking weed out of a can sitting yeah. in, sitting in front of a, a wall with graffiti all over it yeah we did sneak him into the movies you know we we're like we gotta at least put him in there somehow it's, yeah. we had this we had this scene i think brandon turned it up a few years ago it, they, they were shooting us against a wall that was all graffiti and it was on the river and so we were meant to look really grungy and dirty and getting down. And, and uh, so we're smoking out of this can and uh, a riverboat passed. I don't know if you guys remember this, but a yeah. riverboat passed and it was playing quite loudly, the girl from Epanema. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's the last thing you'd expect in a kind of, you know, junky scene. <laughs> <laughs> It's, that, 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 that does it. The world is more surreal than anything you will ever write. Totally. You, you couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't come up with that. Um, <laughs> so uh, Scott and Brandon, in, in, either either and both can answer this. Like, when were you initially interested in this story? Uh, I mean, I guess we should talk about the story. MK Ultra is the CIA's mind. I mean, I know this without reading the book, of course. You know, yeah. the CIA's mind control experiments in the 1960s. Uh, using the LSD, all pretty much, you know, historically verified and all that. Uh, and uh, what was, when did you, just, when did you guys first come together on talking about that project? Yeah. Well, Brand, it began with Brandon with listening to do the radio. You want to, you want to tell that story, Brandon? Yeah, I was uh, just driving around Burbank and, and listening to, it was probably NPR. And there was, a, I just kind of caught the end of, a, of an interview with uh jerry garcia <clears throat> you know the interview took obviously took place in i don't know 70s or 80s or something he died in like 94 right I'm trying to remember right. Something like that, right yeah. There, yeah um so this is a few years after that and uh it's around what 2002 2003 and the interview with jerry garcia he was talking about the first time he had done lsd um and he said he was it was given to him by a cia agent and then he mentioned the, the the program. I thought he said NK Ultra, and I thought, and that was it. You know, I just caught the very end. So immediately went home, and you know, Scott and I were were always looking for ideas for screenplays, and and we've written a couple by that that point, and jumped online. This is yeah, like I said, I think two thousand three, kind of early Google days, and and uh, just typed in NK Ultra, and nothing's coming up. And finally, I saw MK Ultra. I was like, I wonder if that's it. And like, sure enough, boom, there's like you know a CIA program that took place in the fifties and sixties experiment with acid. And it just, the more I looked at it, the more stuff kept popping up. So of course, you know, I call Scott right away and say, dude, I think I got our next screenplay idea. <laughs> You're going to like it. Yeah. Sure enough. Yeah. So we spent about probably just six months yeah, yeah. at least researching. I mean, just the research phase, you know, took forever. Cause you know, it wasn't like it is now. It's now it's just so much easier to find info. Oh, yeah. a little bit more digging, you know, like back yeah. then, it was a little, it was almost like a combination of kind of now versus like an old library with 
you know, Rolo decks, polo right. things like, you know, you'd have to kind of cross reference and you'd see a name and you'd type that in and scroll right. through pages and then finally see that name and then click that. And that's some weird sort of government article that, you know, um, well, it really, it just, be, really began with those two books. There was a book called The Search for the Banturian Candidate written by a guy named John Marks in, I think, 79. Yeah. And then there's another book written in the 80s called Acid Dreams. And those are kind of the Bibles for this thing. It's it's even to this day blows me away that that, that first book that Marks wrote didn't get more attention because it was really on the heels of, you know, when this became sort of public knowledge, but mm -hmm. it never became very explosive. It never became public knowledge. And even to this day, we're amazed at how few people know about this story. They, it still kind of gets thrown into the idea of a conspiracy theory when it was actually it happened. Yeah. 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 I just asked somebody yesterday. <clears throat> I mean, he was probably in his 30s, but if he'd ever heard of MKUltra and he hadn't. Yeah, know? tons of people don't. I've never heard of it. It's wild. Yeah, um, that, yeah. Is, that is kind of wild, but it's, you know, I mean, I write a lot of period stuff as well, yeah. historically based stuff, and it's yeah. I wrote a thing that took place in 1939, and I featured American Nazis in it. And I used a real American Nazi stronghold on uh, Staten Island, on Long Island, excuse me. It's hard. To, the various <laughs> Nazi camps in New York are hard to remember. Uh, and every review of it that I read believed that I had invented them and that it was, uh, or maybe, no, it's a parallel world where there are Nazis in America. I'm like, no, these these guys literally operated a anti-Semitic summer camp yeah. on yeah. Long Island for a decade. And uh, it was hard to convince an audience, no, this crazy thing I'm telling you yeah. is real. I, I, I'm dealing with it right now, the, the tug of war on this thing, where um, I have a, a film shooting in the summer um, that uh, takes place in Germany in the late seventies, you know, uh, in East Germany in the late seventies, you know, with the near the Berlin wall. And it's, it's about um, American music was outlawed and these kids who were bringing American music in and throwing these parties. And they started this political movement that a lot of people now credit with having a role in, in bringing yeah. the wall down. Yeah. Um, and so it's my writing partner and I, uh, and we have these uh, a German director and German producers who are, you know, about 70 and they live through this. And we're having this tug of war where it's like, OK, well, these guys live through it. Right. They know it backwards and forwards. They know what happened there. They know the history. They know the politics. They know all of it. And so they're looking at the script being like, oh, well, we don't need this and we don't need that and we don't need this and we don't need that. But it's like, this is a coming of age story. It's almost like a dead poet society, you know, that takes place in this crazy time, this crazy, you know, this crazy area of the world. Um, and so a lot of our audience, right, is going to be kids in their 20s in America. It's the, the films in English, right? And so, and, 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 and we're going around polling these kids. A 25 year old kid in, at UCLA has no idea that any of this should happen. <laughs> yeah, and so you you have to hold their hand a little bit. You have to right. teach the history lesson, and that's um that's I don't know. It's it's disturbing. It's frustrating. It's funny. Uh, uh, it, it is all of these things. And so I I mean I, I think that that's always an interesting thing. It's like okay, well how much how much hand holding do you have to do? I mean I think that as screenwriters we're already used to like quote unquote idiot proofing scripts. 
mm-hmm. right? Because exe- you know, executives, producers, they they're, they're reading a hundred fucking things a week, right? They're trying to blow <laughs> through them. They're they're only reading the dialogue, all of these things. And mm-hmm. so, if you don't idiot proof it, if you don't hold their hand around every twist and turn, they'll get lost. They'll get confused. Yeah. All of these things. Um, so you idiot proof it for the execs, but then when you get with the director. You try to pull that back a little bit, um, and the director's trying to yank all this shit out, right? Um, but, 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 yeah, it, it's it's shocking to me, like in the information age, how little the average person knows, however, how little the average young person knows. Oh, um, and and, well, it, and you would think like anything's available, right? But but maybe that's the problem is that yeah. like, well, why are you reading about this when you can, you know, again, you, you just talked about how hard it was to find information on this project back in the day. You know, yeah. you, go, you go to the library, you look on fucking microfiche, right? You find two books that exist that, uh, you know, you, you hop on your dial up Internet and you find one article on this like massive thing. Uh, and, you know, it's finding this this diamond in a rough. Right. But now, like, OK, well, I guess I'd rather watch like videos of LeBron dunking, right? So, yeah. so. Well, that, that story, Ryland, are you talking about the Scorpions thing with the band the Scorpions? That's a different that's a different CIA-based tale. Oh, yeah. There yeah. was a podcast not too long yeah. ago, about a year yeah. ago. Yeah. That was another crazy story. So there's so many of these crazy stories. If you start digging into them, today, even now with the internet, you're digging in and you're finding crazier and crazier things like the... Um, oh, what I found one recently, it was called the... Uh, something like the Audio Kitty... That wasn't audio. It's another word for audio, meaning listening. Hmm. And it was a cat that the CIA wired up. They, they put stuff inside its head so they could <laughs> sneak mm-hmm. it into like near KGB sure, places yeah. and have yeah. it, you know, listen in. And they would be on some other part of the you know neighborhood listening to what the cat was hearing. Yeah. But you know, they spent thirty or forty million dollars to find out that cats don't do what they're told. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, right? yeah. not in Cuba too. They did that in Cuba. It might have been. I thought it was in DC, but the um, the story that went around was that the cat was, you know, they spent forty million dollars developing this. Then they released the cat into into the the field, and it immediately got run over. <laughs> that was the story. Yeah, uh, the, the, the the book that I'm finishing up right now, The Jump. It's a a thriller that takes place in in the world of astral projection, and um. Mm-hmm. Basically, where it you know it, it starts out very grassroots with a couple of individuals, but where it ends up is that astral projection kind of becomes like the new tool in espionage, mm-hmm. but more of a corp- corporate espionage thing. And it's like it's based in in more like grounded reality than it sounds because, like any of these things we're talking about, you can go back and I don't know five or six years ago there were papers released saying that the CIA yeah. spent hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. studying studying astral projection as a legitimate tool for espionage trying to do uh, yeah, they, you know, they had a thing they had a thing called remote viewing yeah yeah and they spent an awful lot of money yeah. in it yeah. on it and and what was really interesting was you know universities aren't going to study remote viewing because there's no immediate scientific um boon from that you know yeah. you're, you're dealing with the paranormal it's not something scientists are going to take particularly seriously but the cia saw a potential in it that if it did exist then they could look inside the kremlin yeah. So they, um, they, they spent an awful lot of money on remote viewing, but they found that although there was more than, it was something like higher than a random, you know, it was, it, it was higher than random, that it was, it was occasionally, it was more accurate than it should be if it was just random. Mm-hmm. So even though they turned up what seemed to be evidence that it was working to some extent, it was still not working enough that they could use it. So they stopped. 
Yeah. So I think that's an interesting one. You know, I think that's something that uh, universities well, they, might want to pick up. They on. made uh, the men who stare at goats is kind of about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Like the George Clooney movie kind of. I, yeah. you know, on a certain level, I blame Ian Fleming um, <laughs> because you know I don't think a lot of people know this. I I found this doing historical research for a script set during World War II. Um, Ian Fleming was because he was a writer as well as an intelligence officer in mm -hmm. British naval intelligence. America had no foreign intelligence organization at all at the outbreak of World War II. And they sent Ian Fleming to New York to write a paper that would be used to found the OSS and later the CIA. Mm. This is a guy who, forget the books, even mm. when he was with British Naval Intelligence, his whole thing was, here's a crazy idea. <laughs> Here's a mad scheme, and one of his mad schemes famously worked. The man who wasn't there, the the uh, the man who never was, the, mm -hmm. the dead body with D-Day invasion plans that were. Oh, that was great! Body. I didn't know that was Fleming's idea. Fleming was part of that. I and it sounds like him. <laughs> it has yeah. his e mark, but he was part of the. And you know, British the British have an even more fanatical thing about secrecy than we do. Uh, there's a book I read called uh, Man Called Intrepid, which was published in the 70s yeah. about British intelligence in the 40s. Uh -huh. There were things in it that were still the names of OSS agents <clears throat> who were killed by the Nazis in the 40s were yeah. still classified in that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, Inyat Khan yeah. died in 1945 in front of a Gestapo firing squad. I'm not sure there's a reason to still use her code name <laughs> in paperback in the 70s. I don't right, know that we yeah. still have to call her by her code name. That ship has sailed. Like, yeah. but it's uh, the official secrets act is a is a harsh mistress over there. And uh, yeah, but it, for you know, sure, it's pretty, yeah. pretty long. It's pretty. It's got a long arm in in the U.S. as well. There's yeah. a bunch of yeah. stuff that's still secretive today about you know around about the time of um, Kennedy assassination. Uh, there's still papers that are not being released with regard to yeah. that. So, yeah, man. <clears throat> there's stuff coming out right now about the MLK. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, what was his name? The oh, uh, the, the, the yeah, the killer, the supposed killer. Um, yeah, dang it, I'm just totally drawn away. Something, yeah, uh, no, James Earl Ray. James, James Earl Ray. Ray. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, I, I, I used to be a huge conspiracy buff, you know, especially with the Kennedy assassination. I was convinced, you know, that it was a you know, a cover up and there's more guys involved in the whole thing, you know, on the magic bullet and all that stuff. And I loved Stone's movie when that came out. But then over the years, it just be just became more and more clear that, like, you know, they, there's no way they could cover up a secret that long, you know, with that many people involved. And nobody's ever come forth. And I, they, they, they explain the magic bullet and how it worked because of the yeah. jump seat in the car, and all these things. And, you know, my dad all along was always like, no, it was it was Oswald. And, we, and one of the last huge fights we ever had was about <laughs> that whole thing. But I eventually just came around to, to accepting yeah. that, like, it was probably Oswald. I mean, maybe there's some other, you know people kind of loosely involved or something but like he did the sh he did the shoot i mean he, he yeah, pulled it off it's crazy it is yeah, but this mlk stuff yeah it's i think it's just completely 100 percent clear that it was a conspiracy i mean yeah. uh -huh. the stuff that's coming up there's a book there's a podcast out right now um and it's like i mean this guy was in prison he was kind of like a not very smart guy i mean you know the polite way to say it um yeah. 
and he was in prison because he was a petty, just a petty thief, you know, and he used to just mm -hmm. kept getting busted. He wasn't even, he couldn't even pull off like just robbing a store, you know? Um, <laughs> and he's, and he, but he was able to break out of prison because he was minimum security or whatever, ends up in Memphis. And then he's going to like stage, you know, like a, a, a massive, you know, uh, killing of a very public figure. Yeah, like, yeah. No way. You know I mean? that And that, and then that's just like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's pretty crazy. And not, like I said, I'm not like Mr. Conspiracy guy right. anymore, um, but this one's, I think is pretty crazy. I was yeah. going to say something early about the British um, intelligence. Cause Scott and I did a bunch of research for what could possibly be like um, another CIA story to tell. And that's the whole Iran coup um, in 53. It was like the first time we ever, you know, deposed a, a, a leader of another country and intervene during, um, during peacetime. Yeah, during peacetime. And it was, you know, it was a collaboration with the Brits. I mean, they actually sort of, you know, was there that started with them because of the oil and industry being nationalized and all that stuff. But I mean, to this day, like all sorts of stuff has come out like the CIA, you know, everyone knows our involvement and everybody who was involved and all this stuff. But like with the British guys, like they still won't cop to it at all you know and like there's the, the one guy that supposedly was sort of the, the spearhead for them um and it's just you know i think they did this there's a documentary about it and, and it's kind of part somewhat parts kind of narrative where ralph fiends ray fines writers and mm -hmm. he plays the, this guy i can't remember his name you remember scott the the british agent but like it's just it's all cloaked in complete mystery and they don't yeah. they're they're never gonna admit you know to anything and it was, it was bp bp had a big part in it apparently british petroleum yeah but i mean i mean i shouldn't really say that allegedly right allegedly sure yeah allegedly <laughs> my favorite like i have a friend who's a, uh, an fbi agent slash analyst and he told me an internally told fbi joke which is how do you know the CIA was not involved in the Kennedy assassination? Well, for starters, he's dead. Uh, I think there's a subtext to that joke, which is if the FBI had been involved. Yeah. Here's a funny, here's a funny thing about MKUltra, right? So you've got all these conspiracies. People go in for them. Kennedy, MLK, Robert Kennedy. Sirhan Sirhan was altered and so on and so on and so on. People have all these conspiracy theories, 9-11, all that. And then there's this big, fantastic, insane one that's a fact. And nobody's interested. Nobody seems to know about it. And yet it's right there. You can look it up. It's right there. The Senate held hearings. And even yeah. if you just go with what the Senate found out, just, just if you go with that, none of the other crazy stuff. Um, it's crazy enough. Yeah. Inside the Senate released papers, there's uh, talk of women who were um, who were hypnotized to such an extent that they could be called up on the phone. They had two successful candidates. They could call them up on the phone and give them a code word, and they would flip personality and be ready to kill and take orders to kill. Yeah. And then they could be given that word again by phone, or a book could be flashed in front of their eyes. It would flip back, and they wouldn't remember it. They had yeah. two of maybe thousands of people that they tested on. Ted Kaczynski. I think he was a mathematician, a student. Uh, his personality changed overnight after being tested secretly with MK tests at University of, I think, Berkeley. He became the Unibomber. Yeah. You know, crazy stuff like this. There's and, a little bit of info that, or you know, evidence that James Earl Ray might have been involved yeah, in MK as well. It wouldn't surprise me, yeah. especially that you say he's a petty criminal, Brandon, because yeah. they were testing in prisons. One of the most famous examples yeah. was Whitey Bulger. 
white Sea bulger, it turned out, was a, a, a victim of MKUltra, even though he was in prison for some pretty serious crimes. He was no good sure. guy then. It wasn't like it turned him into a bad guy. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, that, that, that kind of drives me a bit crazy that nobody knows about the story, and yet it's filtering into um, fiction all the time. Stranger Things, I was sitting with my wife, Kathleen, watching Stranger Things, and I turned and I said, this is just MKUltra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is all this is. And yet, you know, if people watch Stranger Things, oh, this is great. I love this science fiction. Yeah. Science, that bit isn't. I mean, the bit of beginning to the upside down, that's a science fiction. But, yeah. you know, manipulating the minds and, and trying to turn people's personalities and controlling people in this way, that is not science fiction. Well, the heart of it, the heart of it is a guy from Scotland that, that did this up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the, the idea that it might be a conspiracy theory is part of part of the narrative in the graphic novel. It's this idea that this main character, Chase, you know, is he telling the truth? Is yeah. He, is he, or is he just is crazy? Happen, yeah. or is he just a crazy guy who did too much too much acid? You know, mm-hmm. so you <laughs> use that use that idea to sort of drive the narrative, which I yeah. think. No, it was that great lucky. idea from the the X Files episode about the Men in Black, which suggested yeah. that. They behave in odd ways so that when you tell the story to the cops, you sound like a crazy person. <laughs> we tell people what you observe. You observe. They say they walked backwards. What? What? <laughs> Why would they do that? That's that <laughs> you know. Uh, you know. You, no, you that's brilliant. I've heard that with regard ridiculous. to. I've heard that with regard to pedophiles. There was a thing I read about pedophiles in which there were certain people who had preyed on children in such a way that they did really strange things around the children. So that when the children recounted the story, it was right. impossible to believe. Ah. So that doesn't surprise me. Jeepers. But it, well, it does surprise. I'm I'm quite inspired by that. I thought I think that's an interesting, you know, thing to look into that men in yeah. black mm. thing there. Yeah. Well, I think I think we all can agree that uh, there's no shortage of stories that emanate from CIA shenanigans. You know, yeah. part <laughs> of our you know part of our grand master plan with the novel is to parlay that into a limited series and. Each, each season to be a different episode of CIA, you know, tales of, you know, shady business. Uh, we've even changed the name to Wilderness of Mirrors, which is kind of a legendary quote by James Angleton that sort of, you know, encapsulates what the spy trade is all about. So mm-hmm. hopefully for us, MK Ultra is season one and we move on from there and do Iran, possibly from there, Bay of Pigs. And there's, there's just so many options, you know, that so this is, yeah. uh, this is where it all begins. Sure. I I always say, you know, I've said this a million times on this show, too, that research is a gold mine. And, you know, writers who don't do their research drive me crazy, you know, and especially when I watch something based on it. A Beautiful Mind is a perfect example, and I'm sure they did their research and they just decided to throw it in the garbage. (laughs) The real story is fascinating. Yeah, the movie is banal nonsense. No, right. Literally, none of which happened except the fact that that guy won a Nobel Prize. That is the only mm-hmm. maybe they got the name of his college right and his wife. Yeah. <laughs> it's that bad, huh? Wow. The rest of it is absolutely the thing that his fantasy wasn't something about the Soviets. His fantasy was about UFOs. Wow. He actually believed that his in the real world, his Ed Harris was telling him that UFOs were real and they were using him to combat alien invasions. His real story, the real story of the A Beautiful Mind is the best unwritten Philip K. Dick novel ever. Uh, And I've never heard of that's not at all the movie they made. (laughs) (laughs) And and I you just go like, why is this 
you know, the real thing is so much. Yeah. They did Why even bother that? Yeah. David, that's them opening that to you. You can now write that. Well, there is that. Yeah. yeah. No, there, there was a TV series recently about Project Blue Book, and I understand mm -hmm. the need to do something that lives up to audience expectations. But once again, the real story is so much more interesting and fucked up than the thing mm -hmm. they told on television. Yeah. yeah. Right, a, right. You know, groundbreaking, you know, yeah, really yeah. way. I was like, you know. Yeah. But anyway, all that said, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the origin of uh, bringing it to Clover and how Clover ended up with it. Ah, right. <clears throat> okay, so um, so we'll I, back, okay, so, we'll back to Lisa first. Yeah, yeah. You want to tell our story, Scott? No, you can. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, we don't so, want to get sued. No. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, no. So Lisa was someone who. Uh, I, I, my first comic strip was published in the Prague, the Prague Post, which was an English language newspaper here, and she was the uh, the editor. Well, not the editor. She was the the, the publisher, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, many years passed, and uh, she became a book agent in New York. And um, at some point, she saw some pieces from MK that I put on Facebook or something, and she said she'd love to represent it. So I spoke to Brandon and Scott. Said should we should we try and do this? Sounds exciting and. So we ended up being represented from by Lisa for a couple of years, and she showed it to everybody, and uh, in New York, and and we got we always got these maddening responses like this is absolutely beautiful. We're not interested, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, apparently, one thing that gave me heart because to me it was very bleak because it's, you know, for Brandon and Scott, they researched it and and put it together a long time ago now. You know, they, they worked on it, and then they did another version, and then they did another rever revision, and so on and so on. But their part in doing that, you know, that's quite some time ago. And I'm taking it, I'm trying to, like, I'm working page by page at a different rate of speed than they would as writers. So I'm kind of slogging through this page after page and getting nowhere, getting nowhere with publishers, getting nowhere with no interest, or we're getting these maddening responses. This is beautiful. This is fantastic. We're not interested. You know, and um, and she's like, oh, it'll work out. And um, uh, but it didn't really. But one nice thing that did happen was we heard that Chip Kidd saw it and he, he complimented the cover. He said something nice about the cover, and that gave me uh, that gave me a wee bit of hope <laughs> that because he's a fantastic you know designer, Chip Kidd. Um, you familiar with Chip Kidd, guys? Chip, Kidd? I, I think I, I think you're, think you're, you're, think you're muted, Avalone. Is, uh, I was saying I recognize the name, but I'm I'm not intimately. Well, he's done he's done loads of you know he does a lot of comic book covers now and stuff for like graphic novels and stuff like that. So it was just nice to hear that someone who was so well respected in the industry had said something really nice about our work. And uh, but it, you know it didn't work out with Lisa, and that was a shame. So you know then there was this kind of wilderness period, and um, uh, around about then Pat Mills uh, saw work that I was doing. Um, okay, so if you, do you know Aces Weekly? This is a digital platform run by David Lloyd, who uh, created, co-created V for Vendetta with Alan Moore. Right. So David's the artist, and the wonderful thing is that he's, I've been a fan of him forever, right? And um, I mean, since 1982, so a long time. And uh, so he puts out this digital thing, and, and, and I showed him a bit of MK Ultra, and he really liked it. And he said he would publish it, but he said that we shouldn't we shouldn't go with him because he can't pay us any money for the digital platform. 
but you know we could find uh we could easily he thought we could easily find a publisher if we just try and uh um and i i i, I find that you know heartening again but um i did something else for david a horror a horror thing and uh and pat mills saw it and he was looking for an artist for a horror that he had written for 2008 so he pushed me to 2000 AD, cut a long story short, I did get to work for 2000 AD. And then the work that I did for 2000 AD uh, was uh, you know, critically acclaimed. A lot of critics said nice things. There was a lot of people actually didn't like it too, because it was too convoluted, but um, too complex or something. But a lot of people really did like it. It was really a down the line thing. But one of the people that liked it was Ted Adams. So he, yeah, reached out immediately and, couldn't believe it so and and he said we'll publish mp ultra he'd seen a few pages and he really liked it so it's it's thanks to that route you know mm -hmm. uh ultimately it's thanks to the stepping stones of david lloyd to pat mills to matt smith at 2008 uh to ted adams and you know ultimately ted adams so yeah so, so yeah that's how that happened but it's it was like uh it was like <clears throat> really hard because you're drawing every day and i, I don't know if Ryland, are you an artist? Are you a writer? Right? Writer, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're both writers. So you've got you've got a set, of, you've got a whole unique set of problems. Uh, one of the problems that writers have is that you've you all your work all looks the same. It's all made of words, and they land on somebody's table, and there's no way for it to jump out. It's just it's just words. And it's not till you read those words that you start to see, oh, this is fantastic, you know. So you've got a whole set of problems there. But the artist has a whole other set of problems where you can do fantastic things, but it takes forever. It takes a long time. Yeah. And you have to keep, once you hit a certain stratospheric level, you can't dip, you know? The temptation is to speed up. But if you speed up, the work, the work changes. Mm -hmm. And it can be better, but it can also be worse. So you, you have a, a burden uh, in a way where you're, you're having to work at a certain level. Um, of course, writers have that too, but I always feel writers, the problem they have is that it's like snow. It all looks the same until you really look at it and then you see what's special. And, what's special. and then also, you guys have also got the problem that, you know, it depends on the imagination of the reader and their, yeah. their level of reading skill. Do they know what you're talking about? Do, right. do they get the references yeah. and so on and so forth? Well, so and we can go bang, bang, bang and get attention, but, yeah. you know, we've got another thing and... So anyway, I'm digressing, but um, it was that route. And so uh, I was very grateful for that. And uh, yeah, there you go. And when, you know, and when you, when you're writing a comic script, I think uh, I read the first person I read put this in words with Gaiman. It's, it's all targeted to the brain of one person, which is the artist. The artist has to understand what you want and what it looks like and see what you do and preferably see it in such a way that it's all of the stuff they can bring to it they can see reading your words and really it's that one-on-one -on -one communication that's the vital part of writing a, a, a of writing a comic script a screenplay is sort of the opposite thing it's it's got to have a universal adapter for understanding on it you can't speak in code you can't use shorthand Right. Yeah, so that any goofball can well, go. Oh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. So uh, yeah. I want to, but so you met Scott and Brandon. They had a finished screenplay. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Brandon screenplay. and Scott came out to Prague, and, yeah. and we met at this great beer garden. I don't know if one of you guys wants to take over, 
But uh, yeah, we met at this great beer garden, Letna, which we all love. And we hadn't seen each other in years. And it wasn't about work. It was just about having a beer and sort of catching up a little bit. And they were telling me about their scripts. And they told me about MKUltra. And I remember saying how exciting that sounded, you know. And um, I couldn't believe it hadn't been picked up. Because to me, it just seemed like a fantastic idea. So we talked about it. We joked fantastic. about the idea. We love it. It's beautiful. Not interested. <laughs> <laughs> so you had the same, yeah, exactly yeah. the same room. We were convinced so, that people you know, d didn't want to make it because they were afraid they might end up at the bottom of a lake in a crate. There's that too, you know, the CIA thing. But uh, yeah, so so we joked about, you know, hey, what about this would be a great graphic novel because, you know, you can't afford the special effects. If you wanted to go crazy with special effects, you need a big budget. But if you're working with an artist, the artist kind of can create that. And um, uh, and so, but it was years. It was years before we actually, you know, we actually did it. And um, or I actually sat down to make it happen. But but uh, but I remember reading it and thinking, this is so funny. What a funny script, and so full of potential for you know explosive LSD experiences and bizarre uh, history, actual history. And, um, you know, era stuff. And then, of course, the big, big thing, the big elephant in the room, that the people who tried to control the minds, these, these CIA lunatics who tried to control people's minds, may have actually triggered the countercultural sort of revolution yeah. Uh, yeah. of total, out of, out of, you know, out of their heads. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and, and creativity. And so... That was just too too great not to make that into a comic book, you know. Yeah. And uh, that, well, that was the biggest draw for I think for Scott and I was. I mean, it's two things: is when we discovered the whole brothel, um, the Operation Midnight Climax, they called it, um, yeah. where they basically, you know, C, you know, CIA funded, you know, American taxpayer dollars, you know, uh, backed whorehouses, you know, where they built these, you know, these brothels fake you know two-way mirrors and stuff and the cia guys are sitting on the other side there with martinis and cigars and like watching as these prostitutes which they trained had a, a famous magician john mulhone train to learn how to do a little like sleight of hand you know with their they had little things on their blouses and drop acid into someone's drink and then you know and they'd go kind of recruit these johns at like you know at a uh, bars and stuff so these prostitutes would show up and kind of lure them back to these safe houses which are dressed up like a brothel mm. and then you know then get the guys super high on lsd and then you know who knows really what happened at that point you know um some yeah. interrogation or just you know just monitoring you know what the hell right. uh being on a, a, that much lsd is going to do to somebody um but that, that that's like excited us then it was all about testing people without their knowledge which was pretty yeah pretty sinister at the time you know just for sure your, your whole world evaporates right in front of you and they would watch and see how people reacted to that and we're thinking about using it as a potential mind control drug and potential cold war weapon yeah it was it's like not, trying to find the, the perfect truth serum kind of thing so right. you know during interrogation you know they thought this this is like the holy grail like you know we finally found that this perfect mind control agent like you know once these guys are on this thing they'll tell us anything and everything you know and so and they they tried it first. I mean, they this whorehouses went for quite a while. So that was nuts. And then and then I'm trying to remember, Scott. Do you remember like was this was this just our theory? This whole idea of like possibly, you know? Yeah, I mean, we we made it like you know, it was it was posited in the Acid Dreams book, but mm -hmm. you know that we really sort of hammered home this idea 
but at least maybe we just imagine it's our idea that in some ways the CIA created the counterculture. They because at one point they flooded the market with acid to try and stop the counterculture movement. Yeah, with bad acid, you know. The, yeah, like the flowery seventies or late sixties mm. with like peace and love just sort of devolved into you know drugged out, washed out scene. You know, and right. part due to do the the product they were putting on the street. No. Well, yeah, and it's like they they had no they could have never foresaw like when they went into the universities and they're you know doing their testing there that like Ken Kesey and Tim Leary and these guys and you know the and Jerry Garcia's would would just suddenly for them it wasn't like they're being experiment on they're like their <laughs> eyes were open and they're like holy mackerel like you know I'm seeing every molecule of every tree and we're all one you know and like suddenly. They just take it and run in a completely different direction. The CIA had never anticipated, and you know, then next thing you know, we have this big peace and love anti-war movement fueled by LSD, which yeah. is completely going against everything the government's trying right. to achieve. You know, so we just we thought that was really exciting. The, you know? the, the history of the world is the history of unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Fort Sumter slavery would have possibly lasted another 20, 30 years. Yeah. yeah. You know, like they were <clears throat> in slavery the minute they fired at an American soldier yeah. and they didn't, they didn't think about that. You know, yeah, they didn't, yeah. that's, you know, the Mujahideen uh, morph into, actually they don't morph into it. their children, basically that become Al Qaeda. Yeah. But you know, I, I looked around the world yeah. once and I was like, literally every trouble spot is a CIA operation <laughs> that went wrong. Yeah. It's, 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 it's own opposition. Okay. I mean, I saw, I, this is probably more common than you see in the newspapers, but I saw a newspaper story just the other couple, couple of days ago where a bunch of undercover cops arrested a different bunch of undercover cops, <laughs> one posing as drug buyers, one posing as drug kingpins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, a, it, and, you know, by the way, this idea is as old as anything. Uh, there's a great book Dick by D.K. Chesterton about, called The Man Who Was Thursday. Oh. And, you know, spoiler alert for a literally 110-year-old book, but it's about the meeting of the Anarchist Council. And by the time you get to the end of the book, Every member of the anarchist council is a secret agent who has infiltrated the anarchists. There are no actual anarchists. It's only British secret agents sitting around a table going, "Yes, we're going to we're going to disrupt the government." And they slowly become, "Oh, you're, oh, you're also MI6." That's awesome. I'm MI6, and again, eventually by the end of the book, it's six MI6 agents sitting around a table going. Who are we? <laughs> Who are the bad guys here? We're at, there are none. We made up this plot. We infiltrated this plot that we made up. <laughs> and what the hell was that all about? And that's that's got to be common as dirt in the intelligence world. Yeah, no, I'm sure. curious. So you had the book finished, volume oh, one, yeah. and drawn for well, many years before Ted saw it and reacted to I, it. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been drawing it for years, and um, uh. I was a very naive boy because I thought it would, you know, if I did a really good job, we'd get, a, we'd land a, we'd land a publishing deal fairly quickly, but that didn't come about, and you know, so I had to start working on other things and get those done, and then go back to MK and back and forth and back and forth. So it was a stepping stone thing, and uh, but I had um, half of the book done. Half of the book should really be 
262 pages, but I had half of the book done. And um, when Ted saw it, and uh, so that's when that became volume one. And then this is me completing volume two. Now I'm about nine pages away from the completion of volume two. And um, that finishes the adaptation of the screenplay. The, the, the two volumes, yeah. it's like I've taken the screenplay and split it in half. Mm -hmm. okay. so, I, um, so what it does is it takes us up to a point where they've established the brothels, they've, they've hired the prostitutes, they've, they've got this pimp, he's turned up and he's given them, he's telling them what they're going to do. <laughs> it's very funny. I mean, to me, it's very funny. But, uh, but anyway, so they've established that and, uh, and then we, it's like the second half is darker. I think, I think of it that way. It's the darker second half because uh, the shit hits the fan more in the second half. We start to see the downside of that. I feel like I feel like we missed a step along the way, which I think is probably a pretty interesting step. I mean, you guys talked about this meeting at a, a beer garden very, very yeah. quickly, but but how do we go from we're a couple of screenwriters who have this great script that people are loving, but you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're not crossing the finish line with it. We've been, you know, I, I've, I've been there before. Okay. We're, we've been on the two yard line with this thing a couple of times. Uh, yeah. We can't, we, we can't punch it in. Um, how do you go from there to, Hey, this might be a great graphic novel. Like that, that, that that's well, an interesting transition. The, uh, well, the screenplay actually got Brandon and I quite a bit of attention around Hollywood. We were sort of, we had agents, we were going on at least a meeting a week for, Quite a while there, with major you know major production companies. They loved the script, but you know, none of no one wanted to make it. And the question was always like, "What else you got?" You know, it's like, "Well, we got this. We want to make this," but no one was biting, and that went on for a while. And ultimately, just you know, it just didn't get made. And we were sitting on this thing. And then when we got together with Stewart, you know, like the thought in our mind was like awesome let's have this turn into a graphic novel then from there we can make the movie gotta go through the back door mm. and that took you know that took several years and that still might happen but that was kind of where we were at, at the time like it just didn't look like this thing was going to get made so why not let Stewart do his thing wait, wait, when wait, wait, when was this happening like uh year wise 2011 okay. around in there is yeah, we, yeah. you know because we wrote the original draft in in 2003 to, mm -hmm. to around 2005 you know with all the rewrites and and we even had um we were we did a pass with craig baumgarten baumgartner i think his name was uh he's, something like he's that he's now. a producer oh wow um he was one of the producers on <laughs> on spider-man and and had a close relationship with toby mcguire and then he thought this would be a perfect vehicle for Toby, you know, this is 17 years ago. And, you know, he would play the young uh, journalist Seymour. And so we did a pass for him, you know, where Seymour now suddenly has to just be way, you know, uh, more <laughs> proactive and, you know, yeah, yeah. someone that Toby McGuire would play. Um, yeah. And then you know, that did help, I think, improve the script, obviously. But yeah. then, you know, then we did, then we just got, you know, ghosted for, you know, for quite a while. And, and next thing I knew, I get an email from a friend of ours, um, and the subject just said, no. And I was like, uh oh, what's up? Look at it. And sure enough, Tommy McGuire has an MK Ultra project <laughs> in the works, you know, like front page of variety. Yeah. And he's basically like what what I believe happened was that, um, you know, because what we've done is we took, you know, a very true story um, and kind of brought some fictional characters into that world to tell to help tell that story. 
um, and, and the, the Seymour characters somewhat based like a kind of a combination of Seymour Hirsch, who was a, re a journalist reporter and, and you're probably aware of him. And then this idea of this, there's this, uh, <clears throat> this story that was in probably one of the, the books, a couple of the books we read and, and, uh, and it was, his name was Eric Olson. His father, um, was Frank Olson. It was an army scientist and he was one of the first, first guys that got dosed without his knowledge. And, um, you know, they met out in some, uh, some, some private place out in, in somewhere in Virginia or whatever. And, uh, you know, to discuss, you know, it was probably had something to do with the mind control or whatever, but, um, <clears throat> what they didn't know was that, you know, the drinks that they were drinking had been laced with LSD and, mm -hmm. Everyone made it through, I guess, pretty, pretty, you know, well, except for Frank, you know, just it really like knocked him sideways and he, you know, didn't really recover, um, was having some issues, you know, psychiatrists and depression and, you know, his family noticed it. And I guess the CIA decided to, to take him up to New York and have him see this, this uh, famous psychiatrist. And uh, they had him up in a hotel room. It was like the 13th floor. And they had him kind of watched by another CIA agent. Well, <clears> next thing, the C this, supposedly the CIA agent claims is he just made a mad dash for the window and jumped out and killed himself, committed suicide, um, which, you know, most likely wasn't what really happened. And, and that's, the, that's the basis for Wormwood, the documentary. I was going to yeah. say, yeah. Uh, so they I, did I that, yes. That. Wormwood is all, is all about that. And so, you know, yeah. but what we, we decided, and I can't remember why, but we, did, we didn't want to make the whole thing just completely all, like, factual and true. And let's base this on Eric Olson. And I knew we would probably have to get his permission and, you know, and who knew, you know, what, where that would lead. So we decided to just kind of fictionalize that element of it. Um, and so I believe that what happened was they probably didn't want to do the kind of, you know, half fictionalized treatment and wanted to just keep it in fact and probably did their own research, found, you know, came across Eric Olson, <clears throat> Frank Olson's story and decided we're just going to do that. But their version will be no. deeply fictional, just like a beautiful mind. Yeah, that's, probably. Yeah. Exactly. That's a, yeah. This is this is a thing that drives me crazy. There's yeah. a lesson about how to make films about real people that has been sitting in plain sight since 1940. What does everybody say is the greatest film ever made? Citizen King. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why is it that everybody that makes a movie about a, a historical figure refuses to learn the lesson of Citizen Kane? Which is, you know what? If his name isn't William Randolph Hearst, we can do whatever the hell we want <laughs> yeah. and tell the best story and not mm -hmm. be used to being liars. Uh, Born on the 4th of July, 90% of what's in that movie never happened. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and when I read about it, I'm like, well, then why make why the character it? John why? Rovick instead of yeah. Ron Rovick and then tell all the lies about him you want? I don't care. Exactly. But when you call Ron Kovic, I expected some of the events in the movie to be at least broadly true. Oh, yeah, he wasn't right. at a protest that turned into a riot. Oh, that didn't happen to him in Vietnam. It's like, well, then why did you make this movie? And <laughs> right. joke, what I'm saying is the Tommy McGuire true story will be just as much nonsense and made up. Yeah, sure. As well, fortunately, this was did. 12 years ago or whatever it was, and they, they obviously never made it. In, yeah. Um, well, that's another, so, I think the, the yeah. number one lesson, when you arrive in Hollywood, someone should hand you a card that says, 
that deal that the person you hate made that you got you so angry and jealous, that movie's never going to get made. So don't exactly, do that. Yeah. Just relax. Totally. Right. And the next we project see. is like saying I made a wish on a star. It's not mm. actually a thing that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. One of my over, favorite over, over the years, the plan is just a list of things that aren't going to happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. One thing that I wanted to say about the art, um, yeah. it's it's hard for me to tell looking at your work, Stuart, if you intentionally leaned into an underground comic style that would have been how this story would have been told in 1971. I did, I did a bit, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, really I mean, it's a, well, your, your normal style has sort of that underground 60s comics look to it. Yeah. But reading this, I was like, this seems like there's a yeah. little more of that than there might have normally been. Yeah, I did do that, especially the 70s scenes. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and laterally, uh, I, I started thinking I should have, I, I was beating myself up about the fact that I should have been more, I should have been more, like I start with EC Comics style, like a, like a black and white, although EC was often color, but I started with something that was reminiscent of EC Comics and and then I, I, when they hit the LSD, we got up into the 70s, I, I tried to look a little bit more underground, which I love anyway. I've always been a fan of underground comics. Sure, That's really my favorite comics, uh, pretty much. And, um, uh, every, you know, Fat Furry, Freak Brothers, Crumb, all this stuff. I just love it. And um, so I did lean into that. But, you know, towards the end, uh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should have been more careful about the 50s scenes and made the 50s scenes with more visible um, Ben Day kind of dots and right. misregistration and more awkward figures. I did, I did do a bit of that. If you see some of the scenes with the MK boys when they're first dozing each other, they're having fun with the LSD, they're kind of goofing around and getting each other stoned. Those figures were deliberately drawn slightly more awkward. Because if you look at comics from the 50s, we always look back on things from the 50s and think, oh, that's the best comics. But you look, a lot of the time, those guys were kicking those comics out really, really fast, were drawing really fast, a lot of them are very wooden, but they're wonderfully charming from our current position. But, you know, they were doing that to get you know, 10 cents on a page or whatever they're getting paid. Uh, so I, I, I started drawing them a little bit more awkward. And um, But then I didn't really stick to that because I kind of, you know, I'd hit a panel, it was going really well, and I'd, I'd go, oh, I'm just going to go with it and make it, you know, as good as I can make it. And then I'd look back as a whole and I'd say, oh, you know, I should have stuck to the awkward thing. And So, yeah, I should have, I feel like I could have separated it into three different styles. It could have been very black and white, DC sort of stuff. Uh, misregistration, poor looking quality, ripped up pages, actually make the pages look old and then in the 70s make it look like, you know, like uh, more of an underground and that includes the cars. I drew the cars. At first I was kind of trying to draw them real and then I started trying to draw them more like the bubble sort of shapes. If you see the cars of Robert Crumb, you know, that's, I was thinking lately I should have been putting big patches on the tires and you know, <laughs> blowing them out like this and having tiny windows and, you know, it could have been a lot more uh, like that, but you know, just got to get it done, and I'm doing it to the best of my ability. But I, I, I have to say, stylistically, I think you pull it off beautifully. I, I don't, you know, I don't Thank think you. we should second guess the choices you made because even in the '50s stuff, it's being informed by a '70s LSD right. sensibility. You couldn't really draw an LSD trip in the fifties. <laughs> That's true. The way, like, it would have come off sort of like early Ditko, maybe. Would have yeah, been a maybe. way to go with that. Yeah. But, well, he he pioneered that. You know, he did. Yeah. Of, he 
He really did. But um, having that not, style in it, I think, was really well. I, I mean, here's here's my reaction to all this: is we have a lot of artists on here, and you know, we bump up against a lot of artists, you know, because of panels and all sorts of other stuff. Like the fact that you put this much thought into it, you know, the thematics <laughs> of your art and the arc of your art and the different, you know, ages of the the story and all this thing is like is is incredible <laughs> because <laughs> because there are you know nine of ten, ninety nine out of a hundred artists i don't know where to put the number but it was like oh yeah you know i put my head down i got it done <laughs> i needed to move on to this i needed to move on to that they asked for revisions i told them to go fuck themselves um <laughs> you know what i'm saying where we're, 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 you're still looking back at this great art that you put a ton of thought into and has this thematic through line and you're like man i should have put a patch on the tire <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Sign me up. We, we, you, 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 you and I need to figure out what you're gonna, what, what we're gonna do together because, <laughs> because this is a revelation to me. So continue, please. Sorry, I'm just well, gonna. The the thing is, I still can go back and do that. Um, uh, but I don't want. I don't know if I should really say this. It's something I told Brandon and Scott, and we and they laughed. I remember Scott said something like, "Because Brandon and I were really into this idea," and I don't know if I should really reveal it, but. Um, I had things going backwards through the comic. I had stories, I had a point in the story where somebody pointed back the way. And if you went, <laughs> you could then start reading the comic backwards. Like there were certain things you might be able to follow back through the comic, through time. And uh, I remember talking to Brandon about that and him thinking that was very funny. And then mentioned to Scott and he said something like, you two are nuts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we got to a point where... I was actually put, I put uh, Patrice Lumumba deep into the background. Wow. Um, and he's at a chocolate factory. He's at a chocolate, chocolate shop somewhere in San Francisco. And um, the sequence, I, di I didn't really fulfill it, but we're going to do a compendium. So I may go back into the background and fix that so that it really works. But what basically happens is as Seymour is talking to his editor about what he's turned up about this, this crazy guy, Chase, uh, and what he's discovered about Gottlieb, who works for the CIA and who is their master uh, poisoner-in-chief. There's a new book by that title that came out in 2019, Poisoner-in-Chief. It's about yeah. this man. And he, famously, he went to Africa to murder Patrice Lumumba, uh, who was, a, I believe, a democratic leader, but he was leaning socialist or toward communist, and it was against the CIA's uh, you know, wishes. So he was to get be got rid of, and he did get he did get murdered, but he was or he was spirited away. Um, but uh, it was by some political uh, uh, opponent. Um, but anyway, long story short, uh, he was unsuccessful in killing Lumumba. So I tried to put that into the background of the strip. It's not in the foreground or the main narrative. It's sort of deep into the background, and that's the one that runs backwards. So yeah. at this point in the story where Seymour is talking to his, uh, his editor. If you look out the window, you'll see two things first. One is, you know those big sausage trucks that they used to have in the States? It's a big wiener truck. It's a, mm -hmm. a wiener. Yeah. The wiener mobile. Uh, the Oscar yeah. Mayer wiener mobile, yeah. That's it, exactly. That's it. So you'll see the Oscar Wire wiener mobile. And then there's also... <laughs> a, 
That's it. That's precisely it. He just has that sitting right there. That's great. No one's going to believe you just had that line there. Uh, I, I have like I, I have probably, the back of his place. Yeah. I have probably ten, ten. I have I have ten wiener mobiles sitting around. So smoke and throw one down there. That's and... actually really really strange that you had that right. to me. It's, it's uh, yeah. it seems to be almost going, an obscure going back thing. to what Ryland was saying before. Like the steward and the details. There are so many little Easter eggs in this book that I think the steward needs to at some point create some sort of you know, compendium that explained to people like on page this, I've, I've read it several times and I'm still going like, what the hell is that? <laughs> a, little, a, little, a little director's commentary, artist's commentary, yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Incredible, you, turn, you turn things detail. up that are really surprising. So like, I didn't know that the Native American people retook Alcatraz. Can you see that? Mm. I don't know if you can see that. They oh, did. Yeah, they, they, they had a sit-in for almost a year there. Yeah, they took over Alcatraz. So in that panel, I've got them going across to Alcatraz, but in like the Delaware scene with like Washington crossing the Delaware. Um, so little <laughs> things like that, just to indicate, you know, uh, history, the history of San Francisco. But in the Patrice Lumumba thing, you've got them going backwards. And what it is, you see the sausage mobile, and then there's a pimp mobile. It's, it's the pimp car from Dirty Harry. Uh, there's a famous scene in Dirty Harry where there's a. Yeah, I, I have that too. Give me. No, I, I, don't, I, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I would leave if you did that. <laughs> um, uh, so, but then if you look even further back, there's a. Because I caught this thing in the papers. It was something about. Uh, oh, it was a Belgian operation because they were so evil in, uh, in Africa and um, Congo. And. Um, the uh, so so I've got I've got him trying to break into a, a Belgian chocolate shop in San Francisco, but he's he's in his sort of black magician outfit. He goes back and forth from looking like a normal CIA chemist to being a guy in a kind of magician's outfit because he was called the black the black magician or the black sorcerer or something. That was the nickname for Gottlieb. But then if you follow the panels backwards from that point, you start seeing him moving against. He's going unnaturally the wrong way, you know. In a comic, you're going in Western comics, you're going, you know, left to right. Uh, but if you go left to right, A, B, C, and you see a man moving against that grain, but he's 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 advancing further forward in each case. You're either going to assume he's walking backwards, or he's actually walking backwards through the comic. He's going <laughs> forwards. So that was the thing I really wanted to do. Um, in the hope that you know maybe somebody would smoke a joint and then notice, you know, they'd just be like, "What?" And yeah. Well, that, you know, as an overall thing, I think too many writers, particularly who come from Hollywood, you know, focus on the "I have an unlimited budget" thing, which is you know <laughs> great unless you have to draw the unlimited budget, uh, which is a very different experience for the artist. But the real joy is that a comic book does not cost $100 million to produce. And so artistically, you can take big swings and you can do yeah. challenging things and you can do a thing like your, you know, the Patrice Lobamba thing is a perfect example, really. Uh, that's a very avant-garde gesture <laughs> to make in a American comic that you're going to presumably sell to people who are also buying Batman. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, that's the real, the real joy of it is, uh, 
you know, a, a friend of mine, a great writer named uh, Javi Grillo Matsurush said the other day that a screenplay is, you know, a set of instructions to create a piece of art. And I'm paraphrasing. It's also a loan application. <laughs> You're also applying for a hundred to two hundred million dollar yeah. loan yeah. to very harsh bankers who may have an opinion yeah. about how you spend their two hundred million dollars. And as That's much true. as you may think of yourself as a rebel and an artist, yeah. there's a small part of me that, as an adult, goes two hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars of another person's money is quite a thing to fuck around with, yeah. <laughs> you know. And yeah, you actually do kind of have a responsibility to them not to feed it into a paper shredder, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And, uh, but in comic books, it's like, I know that nothing I do in a comic book is going to cost anybody their house. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's not right. going to end anybody's life. Uh, no one's going bankrupt. No one's, no one's stock is dropping. I'm good, um, you know. I think it's the most subversive medium we've got. I really do. I think it's it, it operates on on levels. You know, you can you can create something very quickly with mm-hmm. a pen and some words. You write some words down, draw some very rudimentary pictures. You can convey an awful lot. I saw a thing today, just an image, and it was uh, it conveyed in one picture the gravitational pull of a planet uh, against another planet against the sun, and it was the question was how can how can you have a well of gravity that allows something to rotate in a place where there doesn't seem to be anything operating on it. And I read that text and it was in a Twitter, it was on my Twitter feed now because I retweeted it. I read that text and I thought, you know, that's almost impossible to understand as text, but the image immediately below it, you instantly understand what it's saying. Uh, I have no mathematical background at all, scientific background, but I can see immediately what that person was Mm -hmm. trying to convey with that picture. So it's an incredibly powerful medium. And, yeah. um, and you can be doing it, like you say, on a budget, very, very quickly convey great ideas. Mouse this week, you know, very powerful, uh, incredibly powerful book uh, and drawn in a way that's beautiful, but very, very rudimentary uh, and all the more powerful for it because it's almost child, like, for, like a child's illustration series, you know, like but hundreds and hundreds of panels rather than, you know, the 10 or so pages you get in a children's book. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you look at the cover and you look at the way Spiegelman drew all these characters, it's very seductive because you see it from the point of view from a, a, of a child in a way. Mm-hmm. I do. And, um, and uh, it's cartooning and it's something that you're meant to take as silly and funny and yet the subject matter is horrific. Absolutely. And uh, so that, that, that's another, you know, it's a very powerful medium. It's, no, and it's really only in the United States that we don't take it seriously. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because in America, you really, you have some, it's so amazing the, the breadth of comics that you've had in the past. And you, you still have a lot of comics, but if you look at photos from the 50s of the, the newspaper shelves, you know, in, 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 in stores in the States, just festooned with like comic brands, you know, Justice and, uh, you know, Weird Science and all the EC brands and all these other brands we've never heard of because they've all died out. Yeah. Um, but you, you did have it, and you, it is a great medium. And I don't know if it's one of the mediums America is responsible for creating, but it's uh, like they say, jazz is one of America's art forms, right? Yeah. And um, I think animation, maybe. There's there's two art forms. I think yeah. it may be cartooning actually. The, well, but, uh, I don't know about cartooning, but the comic book, the act of taking newspaper strips originally and reprinting them in a book form. I think we did invent that. 
before yeah. okay. before Tintin or Tonton in France, you know, before even the groundbreaking European cartoonists come along. I think before Asterisk and Obelix even. Yeah, you know, yeah I think sure. It's American newspaper strip being reprinted in books is the first here. But then at, uh, in the 1950s, the Frederick Wortham thing, we infantilize comic books uh, and that results in superheroes being the dominant. <clears throat> as Alan Moore once said, the, the preponderance of superheroes in comic books is as strange as if every novel was about, you know, pirates. And it was weird to write a novel that was like if people would write it, but like, oh, novels are not just for fans of pirates. Who knows? It's crazy. It's a crazy idea. Uh, and I think he's right about that. But I, you know, and obviously there are an endless number of examples of how that's not, you know, superheroes are not even remotely the be all and end all of comics. But we got Marvel and DC out there doing their best to keep that true, uh, while all the rest of us are doing our own, you know, crazy shit. Oh, we yeah, talked about the CIA, and now my ride is here. Yes. <laughs> they're coming over. Uh, Osprey's going to land in my backyard, and they're going to drag. <laughs> Just but, be careful uh, what you say, right? Yeah. On that note, we should probably wrap up. But we usually we always okay. wrap up with asking people where can where can we find you. And what do you got coming up next? And let's start with uh, Brandon. Where can we find you on the internet? And what do you got coming up next? Uh, I have a website, uh, brandonbeckner.com. Um, and starting a YouTube channel. So it's just uh, Brandon Beckner. Um, and that's about it. Cool. That's enough. Yeah. And <laughs> should work. Got a computer. <laughs> well, I'm always rolling with Brandon, but, you know, like I said before, our, our big thing is trying to parlay Stuart's amazing work into a limited series. You know, we have uh, some people involved, the director, producer, and we're trying to get some traction. And, you know, our dream is to make this show, you know, mm -hmm. quite, quite the end around to go from a screenplay to a graphic novel, which then gets adapted into a limited series. But that's mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. yeah. out there happening. You never, you never, you never know, right? So why not us is my yeah. My and, and Stuart, you said you had nine pages left for volume two, and then Clover will publish that. Yeah, that'll be. Yeah. We hope to publish that in July this this year. Um, and uh, I can also reveal that uh, Clover have asked to publish my Macbeth graphic novel. So okay. I'll be cool. yeah. Once that's out, once once MK's done, uh, I'll be revamping. Macbeth, the tragedy of Macbeth, which I produced in 2016 uh, as a new sort of volume through Clover. So that's really exciting as well. Um, but then Clover's going to produce a compendium, the whole book produced as one book, 262 pages. And, uh, and so I'm really excited about that too, because I'm going to be adding a lot of different things and going in and making, uh, I'm, I'm in two minds about whether I should fix things, change things or not, you know, maybe I should just leave it or, you know, you pass a point, maybe you should leave leave a certain thing that you weren't happy with, but you know, um, we'll see how it goes. I might go back and add new things so that people who bought the first two books will see a maybe slightly different world in the yeah. third book. You know, well, remember they the can't trust the, they can't trust the history that they yeah. thought they knew. You know, R remember the cautionary tale of George Lucas. That's all I have to oh. say. About going, going, going. It would back only get weird. It wouldn't. It wouldn't get. It wouldn't. There'd be no Ewoks or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. You know that. It would only get more accurate, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now with Ewoks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. I'm. I'm. Uh, 
I, I've known Ted for a while, and I'm very happy to see uh, Clover doing this. I think that's, uh, yeah. that's one thing I have to say to Ted. I, I was really in a when I knew, when I realized that he was the guy responsible, and IDW had put out these gigantic books on you know EC Comics and stuff. When I realized that, I thought, oh boy, we're in good hands here because I love those books. I think you know when I go into comic book stores, it's those that I'm looking at and kind of. Imagining having a collection of those yeah. big poems. There was you know, a period when I kind of couldn't believe that Marvel and DC were letting IDW <laughs> be the institutional memory of comic books. Yeah, that's a Ted really good way that, that I think that era passed when Ted and Robbie left. But uh, it was wild to me that, you know, I would look, I have a, the, the Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. artist edition, and I'm like, Marvel just Marvel. let you run off with these pages, huh? That is yeah. that is some wild shit. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's incredible because it is the record. The way you put it is it's exactly yeah. right. It, it's it the is the record. memory. Our also, uh, that Franco book, I could put legs on it and make a coffee table. A pretty good coffee <laughs> table. Our, uh, our, our old friend Scott Dunbeer is still doing some pretty amazing yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. With those collected editions. Uh, that uh, Isagi Jimbo uh, edition that he put out you know, a year or two ago was gorgeous and won every you, award imaginable. Have you guys had him on? You had him on your show? Uh, uh, we, we, uh, yes, he's, he was on uh, once as part of a, a group um, uh, before okay. the Wendell Awards. And then we tried to do a deep dive with him and mm -hmm. it was just riddled with all these uh, uh, technical problems on his end. Oh. And, 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 and we haven't gotten it back on the books, but, but that's yeah, no, we should, we should have got on again. Yeah, he's uh, a great dude. And we, we, you know, we were bringing yeah. his, his designers on also, and that was going to be a, a really mm -hmm. Too, but, Fantastic uh, artist, really. Yeah, but yeah. um, yeah, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just kind of drunkenly saddled me with it, and now, <laughs> I, now, now I have to spell it for you. So, uh, uh, my books, uh, the Ringo Award-winning Aberrant and the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjax are available in fine comic shops everywhere and via Comicsology and Amazon and. You know, anywhere you get shit like that. Uh, my uh, Kickstarter books, uh, the Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and the Fargo S Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers, are available via my Backer Kit site right now. If you go to the jump2.backerkit.com, that's the jump one word and the number two, the jump2.backerkit.com, you'll find those there, um, as well as signed books and rare con variants and all that stuff. Love it. That's pretty. Um, uh, and as I, I just completely forgot, Ryland, I didn't realize that I, that was my moment to plug. So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do it, do it, do it. Please do. Yeah. Project MP Ultra. Find us on on the internet, and I'm at OPIPOP on Twitter. So there you have it. Sorry, didn't want to do that. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. Get him in, get him in. And, and we'll have all this stuff in the show notes too. So, so, uh, so you will be uh, well taken care of. And while you are picking up your co copy of uh, of MK Ultra, uh, make sure to grab the uh, newly collected edition of Suicide Jockeys via Sourcepoint Press. It is uh, It is online. It is in uh, comic shops right now. So go grab it. That is a howling good time. Avalone, what do you got for us, man? Uh, I can be easily found at uh, davidavalonefreelance.com. That's the website that links to all of the things. All I mean, luckily, you know, you grow up with a name like David Avalone, you get teased on the playground. But in the age of Google, it's pretty great to be the only guy that shows up for 11 pages of results. Nice. Uh, That's which would not necessarily be the case. Without the complicated Neapolitan <laughs> name, um, so that's nice. 
uh, in shops now should be, I did a 10 page uh, love story in the Vampirella Valentine's Day uh, issue, which I think uh, came out, should have come out in early February. Um, I did uh, another short piece in Red Sonja Black, White and Red, which was pretty recent, issue number six. The fifth issue of Elvira meets Vincent Price is maybe in stores now, maybe next week, which wraps up that series and sets up the next series, Elvira in Horrorland, uh, which Sylvia uh, Califano is drawing as we speak. Um, that finds Elvira trapped in uh, in the pocket dimensions that movies apparently create for themselves. In the first issue, she finds herself... Uh, in the shower up against Norman Bates. And in the second issue, uh, I like telling the, the title of the second issue is She's a Kubrick House. Uh, right. You can guess what the topic of that issue is. You win a no prize, as Stanley would have said. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this exciting episode of The Writer's Block. Thank you so much, Stuart, Scott, and Brandon, for joining yes, us. Thank you. Thanks for and, having us, guys. Uh, thank you. We'll yeah, see you all you. next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.